This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to an episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Daniel Yuta to tell us all about his book, just out from Yale University Press in 2023, titled Transparency, The Material History of an Idea, which is a really cool book. It investigates both the kind of concept of transparency, that we think that transparent things are inherently better and more open and more free. Where did we get that idea from? And the book also helps us understand literal transparency. Um, Many of us are probably listening to this in, for example, buildings with big glass windows. When, how, and why did that come to be? And how are these two different things interlinked? So, as you can probably tell, I found this book fascinating. And so, Daniel, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about it. Thank you, Miranda. Happy to be here. Before we get into all things transparency, though, could you please introduce yourself a little bit to our audience and explain why you decided to write this book? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Miranda. Uh, I, uh, my name is Daniel Yuta. I teach at New York University in the Department of History. I teach primarily history of early modern Europe, Europe between 1400 and 1800. But I have a larger thematic interest that transcends that particular period. It's it's an interest in the history of the built environment, the history of material culture, urban history, broadly speaking. And uh, the book has really grown out over many years, grown out of this uh, thematic interest. And I was trying, as you say, I was trying to write a book that, uh, uh, you know, brings together two areas that we don't often maybe think you know think of, of being entangled considered to being entangled the history of um, uh, material culture and intellectual history the history of ideas of a very powerful idea of our um, of our times the, the idea of transparency coupling that with the history of uh, a particular uh, material commodity that I think we all, uh, take for granted, maybe take for granted too easily. That is glass, architectural glass, especially. So that's that's my background, and that's where the project emerged from. And uh, it took a f- number of years, but now it's done. 
<laughs> and now we get to talk about it. Um, so as you've mentioned in that answer, you the book is not sort of two halves smushed together. It's not an intellectual history and then a material history or the other way around. It's woven throughout, um, which is fascinating because we don't usually put them together. And I'm going to try and mimic that with this interview. Um, so going from the material culture to the intellectual history and seeing how they go together um, to, to mimic what you've done so well in the book. So starting with the kind of straightforward background, I suppose, right at the beginning, if we're talking about glass, you start us off mainly with the Romans, but the Romans don't seem to be using glass for architectural purposes. So take us to this beginning point. Why aren't they using it? Yeah, thank you. Um, it, it was <clears throat> one of the challenges in writing this book was uh, to go back that far in, in, into antiquity. As I said, I usually study European history of a much later period. But I felt that in this case, with this book and this argument, it was necessary to go all the way uh, into antiquity. Uh, you rightly say that uh, the Romans were, first of all, not the first to use glass in uh, as, a, as a society. And they used it uh, reluctantly in their architecture. So there are two questions that arise here. Um, why did pre-Roman societies, uh, why did pre-Roman societies not produce um, glass windows in the first place? And why uh, were the Romans who mastered that eventually, why were they reluctant? Well, I think the first question is, uh, it has to do with uh, technical constraints, that uh, uh, glass blowing as a technique was not yet uh, known in uh, in <clears throat> pre-Roman times, uh, and uh, it, that is a big innovation that the Romans introduced, and that uh, I think many people don't uh, often don't know that uh, glass panes for centuries, window glass was made of cylinders, was made of um, of glass blown of a glass blown cylinder that was then cut up longitudinally. So that is a technique that did not exist in pre-Roman times. There was there were ways of casting glass into paints, but that was um, apparently exceeding prohibitively uh, expensive and therefore also did not gain um, traction. And then uh, climatic factors play a role as well. Uh, a glass making was first um, discovered that the, the techniques around glass making were first discovered in the ancient Middle East. Uh, in, uh, in a climate where the glass is not necessarily a desirable choice for your for sealing your windows. There is um, other issues that are much more uh, important, uh, protecting the home from glare or from stifling heat. And there are technologies that do that better than architectural glass. There are lattices, there are um, um, other sort of timber or, or stone grills. Uh, that, uh, you know, actually in later Islamic architecture uh, would give us the so-called mashrabiya, the incredibly fine uh, uh, timber uh, lattice work that is still forms part of traditional Islamic architecture. So that's the broader cultural context in addition to the technological um, factors. And the Romans uh, did master glass blowing, but they uh, did not at first apply to uh, windows. That is something that really, in my opinion, only starts when the Roman Empire expands uh, in Northern Europe and when questions of thermal insulation, weatherproofing, uh, protection from heat loss become a lot more important as a function of Roman imperial uh, uh, ex uh, expansion beyond its Mediterranean uh, home base. So 
that I think is a very helpful starting point um, because it kind of pokes at some things we maybe don't, uh, we assumptions we have that we don't interrogate. For example, what do you mean glass is not the most ideal substance? Um, and also kind of, well, what if you have this technology, why wouldn't you use it, right? And it's useful to kind of disrupt those expectations before we move forward. So I'm wondering if I can ask you to tell us a little bit more about why, having figured out this technology, um, you consider the role of glass windows to have an ambiguous position for the Romans. A be- that, tell us more about that reluctance you mentioned. Yeah, yeah that, that was something that was fascinating for me to uh, learn more about. And I knew next to nothing about this when I began uh, this research. Um, we have all, I think any of us who has ever stepped into a gallery of uh, Roman art and culture will have seen countless shards of glass vessels, other glass objects, which would, um, you know, would, maybe suggest to us that glass was among the most prized objects in Roman society. But it was not. The Romans had a very pragmatic attitude towards glass in general. They used it for vessels, quotidian vessels, containers, jars, um, cups. Um, But they also considered glass to be ultimately a cheap uh, material, which had a lot to do with with the ingredients from which glass is made. Uh, Glass is made uh, of 80%. So uh, sand, which is a which the Romans considered to be a base material compared to, uh, say, uh, uh, silver, gold, other metals. And um, for that reason, as one scholar has uh, put it, Stuart Fleming, uh, um, glass, I I quote him, set low, it set low in the hierarchy of Roman material uh, uh, values. It was considered to be something that, um, uh, you know, uh, that, that had its purpose in certain pragmatic uh, context, but in the most refined settings, uh, Romans would have shunned it. We have reports of emperors, Roman emperors, who would refuse to drink from glass cups and instead uh, insisting on uh, finer cups made of crystal or um, again silver, or gold. And in architecture, we see uh, the same phenomenon. The, as I said, the, the Romans did, uh, for the first time in human history, on a large scale. Uh, use glass in architectural purposes, but only in certain genres of architecture where it was pragmatically wise to do that, in uh, the bathhouses especially. So again, where the issue of heat loss and weatherproofing was of essential importance, especially with the expansion of the Roman Empire into Northern Europe, uh, glass was used. It was not used, it was rarely used in imperial architecture, in the kind of architecture that was uh, meant to project power and prestige, and it was not at all used in sacred architecture, Roman sacred architecture, which it gives us the most uh, fascinating contrast with what is coming later in Christianity, when glass does, for the first time, uh, get associated with a certain, you know, with certain theological notions of light and and purity, but in ways that uh, in Roman society would have been more or less inconceivable because, again, glass was not seen to be to have that inherent prestige. So, in fact, that is where I'd like to go next. Now that we've established um, what Rome did and did not value from glass, um, as you've mentioned, Christianity had a very different perspective, particularly if we go into medieval churches. Why did they want so much glass and why was it specifically colored glass that was so valuable? Yeah, thank you. I think that is really a fundamental, it's a watershed moment here in uh, in Western cultural history, in the history of architecture and art um, that we observe 
a paradigm shift between Roman and post-Roman times. As I said, in Roman architecture, glass was uh, not used in uh, sacred architecture. Uh, we also have to uh, keep in mind here that Roman religion, which was a very het heterogeneous um, um, uh, set of beliefs in the first place, but Roman religion was primarily an outdoors-based uh, religion. The uh, the cults were um, were uh, were transacted outside of the temple. What we now think of as the Roman temple, the Greek and by extension the Roman temple, was actually largely reserved for certain liturgical practices by the priests and served often as kind of oversized vaults for precious uh, religious instruments, also for looted uh, artworks or other sort of um, booty that the Romans had amassed. Uh, the actual religious practices were often outdoors, sac animal sacrifices and so on. And so we have a very different, there's a very different way in which religious life and religious service is conducted. Christianity moved religious service, worship, in, into the interior and uh, is from the beginning Christianity was a more congregation-based form of religion uh, compared to uh, Roman religion. So the need to be indoors also comes with greater attention to the need for light, uh, which is also, of course, you need certain light levels to perform uh, congregational service, uh, prayers, other forms of liturgy that are more text-based than Roman religion uh, was. I think that's one factor that called for more attention to uh, light, natural light and uh, lighting levels in the interior. The other factor, though, is, is a more symbolic in that um, the, the early Christian communities and well into uh, uh, the, the early Middle Ages see themselves in a competition with uh, Roman uh, solar cults, the, uh, especially the Roman uh, the, the, the Roman idea of a sol invictus, of a sun god, is something that was seen as, as, uh, as, um, you know, as requiring supersession, supersession by the idea of Christ as the light of the world, right? That's one of the famous uh, lines in the New Testament in John uh, Christ saying, I am the light of the world. Uh, then s s countless uh, church fathers elaborating on this idea, uh, referring to him as light from light. There are different variations on that theme. But in any case, the way in which uh, Christ was fashioned as a, uh, as a uh, divine figure with uh, emanating light, emanating divine light, called for a way in which that theology can be translated into a concrete experience. And the ever larger... Uh, glass windows that emerge in uh, the medieval cathedral and that very powerful dramaturgy or drama of polychrome light serve to uh, reinforce that message about um, about uh, uh, Christ as a luminous figure uh, also <clears throat> invoking certain associations with uh, other parts of the New Testament uh, passages about the uh, about the heavenly Jerusalem from Revelation, where the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, is described as having as having walls made of uh, colored gemstones. Uh, that, that's certainly another thing that early Christians were aspiring to um, emulate, to mimic, and to imitate, and to emulate in their sacred architecture. But it's most. Imp uh, but the other factors that I've mentioned are just as important, and it gives us a wholly new aesthetic of sacred space compared to uh, the Roman period. Absolutely. And I think it gives anyone listening um, a very different thing to consider next time they happen to encounter one of these churches that still has 
all of this colored glass. Um, I was fascinated to read that part of the book, but then equally kind of intrigued going further to read that despite the fact that the churches really had quite a lot of stained glass and it was so important to them, medieval people in their everyday homes uh, were not really using glass still at this point. So how did they seal their windows, especially if we're moving north of Rome? And why wasn't glass still very high on the list? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, uh, that is again a, a question of, of cost, I think, more than anything else. Glass was expensive. Um, it's an expensive that it's an expense that uh, people felt was um, the right choice for uh, the church, the church being the house of God in, in, in this world. So um, there are, you could say, uh, in modern terms, anachronistic terms, there are fundraising campaigns throughout the Middle Ages to have uh, to produce these wonderful uh, Gothic cathedrals with their uh, uh, with their comprehensive stained glass uh, cycles. And often that's why donors are inserted into medieval stained glass windows because someone had to pay for this and it was extremely expensive. Uh, but in an ordinary quotidian setting, uh, people often looked for uh, cheaper choices, and there were a number of choices, a range of alternatives that, to glass that existed that have virtually been forgotten. Uh, here again, I I tremendously enjoyed this research because it um, it, it made me aware of a range of uh, technologic of technologies, domestic technologies that um, we don't know about, and even the words have fallen into oblivion. Uh, they are in in English, for instance, in medieval English. People spoke of fenestrals, uh, a term that we don't no longer use, even though you might know that in Romans language, finestra or fenetra means uh, window. But in medieval English, a fenestral referred to a type of window that was sealed with fabrics, uh, linen, stretched linen, sometimes stretched parchment, other animal skins, even animal bladders, or mineralic uh, objects, um, uh, uh, um, thinly thinly sliced um, uh, mineralic stones and so on that could serve legitimately as as window sealants and as alternatives to um, glass. They were, as I said, they were typically cheaper. They were also easier to install, uh, easier to repair, and easier to maintain. Glass um, is a very delicate uh, technology. The, as I said, the producing glass panes of a large size required uh, uh, particular techniques. And uh, in the absence of, uh, of glass casting, which, uh, which was not available as a technology in the Middle Ages, even though in antiquity it had existed, uh, most glass panes, most glass windows were multi, multi-piece composites uh, held together by lead panes. So if one piece broke out, you had to, uh, uh, you had to reassemble uh, to repair that particular piece, cut it back into the size. It's, it's, it's a delicate operation. Whereas if you just uh, have a, uh, a you know, piece of linen uh, uh, that, is, uh, that spans a wooden frame, that is something that you can, uh, you know, some do-it-yourself techniques, you can, um, you can repair that. We have um, as late as the 17th century, uh, I'm speaking now from the perspective of someone who lives in America, the, uh, the, the story of the Mayflower colonists who, um, uh, who advised their 
friends in England writing back to England to um, actually bring paper and oil for their windows. That's uh, coming out of a letter of one of the Mayflower people, uh, reminding us that in a context, in a society where people were also quite mobile uh, and were do-it-yourself was sometimes a survival technique, um, um, glass was not necessarily a very pragmatic choice. And therefore, these other um, types of uh, sealants uh, lend themselves much better. They also lend themselves to uh, personalization, I should add, in that uh, people like to adorn their windows with particular, say, heraldic symbols, stories, sometimes entire stories or other visual scenes were added to windows. Of course, that is something that derives from the aesthetic of stained glass, but with uh, textile windows, you can do that yourself. And we know that um, um, householders in throughout the Middle Ages and the early modern period were actually quite keen to individualize their windows, which is another thing we've lost. I think there are very few elements of our built environment today that are more standardized than windows. And of course, we expect them to be fully transparent. That is not the expectation in this period. There are other uh, expectations that people bring to their windows and individualization and personalization, uh, including through painting, uh, is something that mattered a lot to people. I have this great mental image of all the sort of um, late medieval, early modern villages that we see in films and kind of going, wait a second, what if they all had really colorful, painted, woven, etc. windows? That would be quite fun. Yes, it would be fun. And I think we've completely lost uh, even our visual understanding of what these things look like. I have to scramble for good images in the book. Um, mm. uh, the textual records inventories may just mention that there was a fenestral or in Italian, these things were called impanata, uh, a, a textile window. But there, there are very few images, paintings from this period that actually show us these things in the background. Because again, this wasn't something that was considered to be necessarily worthy of inclusion in a in in painting especially in a period when a lot of painting is religious painting but here and there we have this evidence and it was fascinating to to get a glimpse into a world that is very hard for us to visualize historical movies get that part wrong for the greater part because the as you say uh, we have no visual sense of what these things would have even looked like and that in and of itself i think speaks so strongly to just how much glass has essentially won right? Because we do have archives of other things that go back further. So the fact that we have so little material of this speaks to a pretty significant transformation away from this world that you're bringing us back to, to get to where we are now. So let's move into kind of understanding how that happened. Um, you note in the book that really one of the first places um, to start using glass in windows besides the church were in late medieval hospitals. Why was this the first sort of place that had clear glass windows? Yeah, that was another surprise for me in this research, uh, observing this pattern, uh, because as you say, the question, it's the elephant in the room uh, with this argument. So when does glass gain, uh, you know, when does it start to prevail? When does it start to predominate? Uh, in which particular time, for what particular reasons. And uh, my answer to this is is multi-pronged, but I, I, I see medieval hospitals as taking uh, playing a pioneering uh, role here in that transition from textile windows to um, glass uh, in, in a secular context. And churches is a different story. Uh, churches always had glass. But in, in secular architecture, it's the hospitals that um, play that um, transitional role. And um, I 
attribute that partly to uh, the, the 14th century and the uh, enormously consequential experience of uh, the plague in the 1340s, which, um, uh, which compelled people to think, uh, to, to, to rethink their priorities, their expectations uh, as far as windows uh, were concerned. And it, uh, my reading of the material is that a tight protection, you know, the tightness, the ability to insulate interiors from uh, air, not necessarily cold air, but foul air, uh, became a big uh, concern. And glass was seen as doing this more effectively than other sealants. Uh, we have to remember that this is an HB4 bacteriology, uh, the uh, common explanation of, uh, uh, of the plague was uh, connected to the idea of miasmata, miasma being foul air, rank uh, air that uh, float, that sort of uh, hovered in, especially in uh, cities. So in a, medical, uh, in a medical culture in which air is associated with a medical danger, with health uh, uh, risks of such a scale, uh, the uh, insertion of sealants that were seen to be tighter, more sort of um, uh, um, more pr- offering more protection uh, from that influx of air um, became a new priority. And there is medievalists have argued that um, generally privacy uh, the uh, and even issues of comfort in this period were not so much. Uh, understood in visual terms, the way for us, for instance, privacy and and the sense of being protected at home is about, say, having curtains and being able to seclude ourselves in visual terms from the exterior. That, uh, in contrast, in the Middle Ages, it it seems that uh, olfactory pro- uh, protection, being shielded from uh, from dangerous air, uh, became an increasingly important issue and ultimately defined. What uh, what what comfort and safety meant, and the hospitals, I think, take the lead in in promoting this idea, which is fascinating, right, on many levels, um, both because of the kind of architectural side and because of what you've just told us, what insight it gives us into how people saw not just glass but a lot of other things, right? It tells us what they think about privacy and um, infringement and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. We're, we're, we're working on this question you raised of like, how did we get to glass? But we're not quite there because so far all we've got for glass is big cathedrals, churches, religious architecture that has sort of theological mm-hmm. reasons. Uh-huh. Now we've got hospitals that, as we all know, kind of change forced by a pandemic is very mm-hmm. real. That's right, that's right. And mm-hmm. causes a lot of change. But what about kind of, we're still not there for kind of everyday people's homes so when how and why did we transition not just into glass being the window sealant of preference but even all the way to like as you said we've forgotten these words we think that using anything else is bad Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's where where a third factor comes into play as you said we've talked about uh theology as a driving factor behind the, the general introduction of glass into uh, especially religious architecture. Then I mentioned that the 14th century is important uh, in that it, um, it creates forced opportunities because of uh, the plague for the insertion of glass into particular types of 
especially hospitals of buildings associated with healthcare. And then in the 16th century, uh, I think it, there's a particular climatic uh, uh, event, uh, a macro event of sorts that plays an important role, which is what we historians have come to call the Little Ice Age. Now, there's a lot of disagreement about uh, the dating of the Little Ice Age. It is now established that there was one. Of course, it didn't start on one particular day, uh, but it is thought, there's, I think there's a consensus among historians that it begins sometime in the mid-16th century and that it lasts until the early um, uh, 18th century, into the early 18th century. 1550 to 1720s are dates that are often cited in the literature. So a, um, a, a macro-climatic um, phenomenon that came with um, prolonged uh, cold periods, um, among other things, and uh, that uh, brought this question of insulation, which, as I said, was previously one primarily considered from an olfactory perspective, which brought this question of, of insulation to a new level and uh, required people to, first of all, install other technologies in their um, in their. Uh, homes that, uh, you know, for heating, for instance, we uh, there are historians, including in the British Isles, who have studied carefully the proliferation of chimneys in this period as an indicator of an increasing need for, for heat, uh, domestic heat. But uh, windows, glass windows became part of this new regimen to, um, um, to protect oneself from these prolonged periods of um, cold. Now, that's not because glass is uh, uh, that the, the thermal efficiency of glass is all that impressive. It is, it is not, but it is more, uh, but it is still more efficient as a sealant than, say, those textile um, windows. And in that context, it, uh, glass came to be endowed with a, uh, with a kind of class-based prestige that, again, in the English, in the British Isles is particularly conspicuous in uh, those for the English um, or, you know, British audience in, on this program might immediately think of the so-called prodigy houses that you have across England. Uh, they're sort of lantern houses, as they sometimes call, that sprout up in that particular moment in the 16th century. Places like Hardwick Hall, uh, for instance, is particularly known one of those prodigy houses, as they were called. Uh, for Hardwick Hall, they, they famously uh, quipped, even at the time, Hardwick Hall, more glass than wall. There was that jingle, which encapsulated that those who could afford it would now make the display of domestic glass uh, part of their, uh, as government would have it, as a presentation of self in everyday life. It became glass became an object of conspicuous consumption uh, in ways it had not, because it responded to certain pragmatic needs, but it, the ability to uh, to display it in abundance uh, uh, came to be tied up with questions of. Class. I call that chapter glass and class, not just because it rhymes nicely, but because I think that that's really where the um, the, uh, uh, the the power of that dynamic lies. In that uh, uh, people start to adopt this technology in light of, uh, of of climate change, as we would call it today, but at the same time they endow it with a sense of inevitability um, that uh, quickly spreads through society. So that by the end of the 18th century. Uh, glass has come to be seen as, as I said, inevitable. And this is very nicely reflected in English law in uh, this time, 
which um, well into the 16th century glass windows were windows in general because of that mobility that I talked about earlier, the, you know, the need to install them quickly and to remove them quickly, repair them quickly. Glass windows were seen as, as, as mobile elements. They could be inherited. Uh, the house and the windows could go to different heirs in a legal, in a will in English law well into the 16th century. And from the 16th century onward, the legal thinking on this changes. And now how the house and the windows are seen as inseparable in a legal transaction. The windows cannot be removed. And that is uh, a reflection of the fact that now glass windows were seen to be essential in a ways uh, that they hadn't been in a previous period. I think this is perhaps um, one of the things I found most intriguing, maybe because it was the most familiar. It was, oh, wait, you're saying that the posh rich people decide on something, go and spend a lot of money and do it. And then over time, that trickles down into everyone else thinking that must be how it works. That sounds like a lot of other material culture. I never would have put glass in that category. So, yeah, no, would I. Again, a lot of this was, was new to me. Uh, and uh, uh, I remember going to Hartwick Hall in, uh, uh, in England uh, as a site that I wanted to see. I'd read so much about it. And as a historian, they're often, you know, you often do research about places long before you go and see them. And therefore, you're not necessarily, you know, uh, you, there's a little, you know, uh, the effect of going can sometimes even be disappointing because the site doesn't. Hard Recall was the exact opposite. For me, it was a, sort of a, an exceptional experience. I saw that place. I had read so much about it, and yet I thought, this is incredible. This kind of show-off use of glass is absolutely incredible. It points to a much larger cultural transformation. It cannot be understood without that context. This is not an eccentricity. This, is, this runs a lot deeper. This is about a, material, a hierarchy of material values that has changed profoundly as opposed to the previous period. Absolutely. It's it's such a fabulous example. Um, I want to stay on this idea of the cultural transformation um, because it's not just what you've talked about so far. There's another element that then comes up about the distinction between public and private buildings. Because again, going back to our assumption that we have now that there's curtains, right? As you said, that in your own home, there's this idea of visual demarcation. But we seem to have a lot of public buildings that are really shiny, where there's a lot of glass involved. And that's a transformation too. So can you help us understand how and why this divide sprang up? Yeah. So, I mean, it harks back to something you said earlier when you said that these taste, the, the changing tastes trickle, trickle down. Elites start to um, do something and then everyone else follows. Um, on the whole, there is that dynamic, but it doesn't mean that reluctance didn't exist. Uh, uh, again, the elites can afford to do these things in ways that ordinary people cannot. There is an element of competition. It is conspicuous consumption. And still, uh, there are older traditions that um, uh, people had as far as, say, the personalization of their windows is concerned that weren't easily superseded. So there is um, so uh, the, the, the introduction, the way in which glass transparent glass especially gradually prevails is a process that was met with uh, resistance people had to sort out issues that that new issues that arose in that process uh, if if the transparent glass window large oversized window becomes is is pushed as the new norm how do you deal with questions of uh, glare for instance which was not an issue in a period when 
for centuries when textile fab, uh, fabrics, sealants mediated or mitigated that issue. So people uh, increasingly face that uh, pressure to install glass windows, but it makes at the same time, it creates a necessity to install curtains, as, as you said, you pointed to the curtains, um, to adjust to higher uh, light levels, to um, you know adjust to the issues of visual privacy that arise. As I said, visual privacy was not a big concern to uh, medieval householders, simply because it's, it wasn't an issue that would arise given the technological uh, circumstances and the fact that many windows were translucent rather than transparent. The, uh, so people also have to adjust to new forms of uh, visual privacy and in the infringement of visual privacy. So for that reason, there is that divide, between, which you pointed out, between public versus private buildings, uh, in especially in the 18th century onwards, where you have... Um, uh, you have elite projects, like think of the Chateau in Versailles with its famous uh, Hall of Mirrors, which is a gigantic uh, uh, apparatus, if you will, to um, amplify the effect of daylight, both through oversized windows and then mirrors lining the walls that reflect that light and therefore create that sense of an abundant uh, an abundance of, of light that, of course, served a political, that, that sent out a political message. But people in their everyday spaces can't do that, and they don't necessarily want to do this. And uh, by the 19th century, that reluctance has grown into, in, in, in some circles, into a real resistance. In the 19th century, we see a darkening of interiors. We see a new taste for darkness in uh, domestic spaces, uh, the heavy furniture that we associate with the 19th century, the thick curtains, are a reflection of a certain unease that people have with a language of light that they feel is imposed on them and that serves uh, often political and elite interests more than actually their uh, private and domestic needs. So um, there is that, um, there is that uh, dichotomy that by the 19th century, uh, uh, is almost like the elephant in the room in uh, in architecture because there's a market divide between public ar architecture, the splendid glass houses, the crystal palaces that uh, we see in the public sphere, and people's private desire to move to uh, 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 other lighting levels that are seen as less intrusive. It, and, and again, the question of visual privacy comes much more to the fore. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think there's probably a bunch of people sitting here imagining kind of, oh, now now I'm rethinking that place that I visited. Oh, that's what that was happening there or something like that. Um, so it's an interesting way to kind of understand things we might think we're familiar with, um, but with new information. And speaking of that, I'd love to stay on the topic of the public buildings for a moment, um, because they are often more visible um, and often quite extravagant, right? As you said, Crystal Palace, for example, in London, I mean, it's huge. Uh, that's a lot of glass. So this isn't a small thing um, that's being done just kind of as a one-off. And you link this to a wider context in the book, that this is not just possible because of money or because of improved technology, though that is part of it, but also about concepts of power, concepts of mastery more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. I, I think with this um, architecture of public uh, uh, glass, power is always a, a theme that's that's present. It can take different manifestations. Um, uh, it can be about economic power. It can be about institutional power. Uh, I think the uh, one of the best known examples here is uh, Jeremy Bentham and his Panopticon, uh, the kind of institutional uh, surveillance 
that uh, Bentham imagined and that's been discussed by Michel Foucault and others. Uh, we know a lot about um, the, uh, the history of that project, which actually never fully materialized. We know less about uh, Bentham's deep dedication to a glass as a material that would enable this uh, surveillance. Uh, people have talked about the panopticon often in terms of its ground plan and the way in which it makes it possible for the guards to observe the prisoners without uh, the prisoners, the inmates, uh, knowing that. But glass was crucial in the actual material vision that uh, Bentham had. And he is one of the people who explicitly um, links this choice of material to a form of uh, um, to a form of social interaction um, that we now call transparency. Uh, there is uh, a line in Bentham where he says, uh, my prison is, I'm quoting, my prison is transparent, my management no less so. So here we have the origins of what I believe is that modern mantra that, uh, or that kind of almost supernatural thinking of our time that if you sheet buildings, if you envelope buildings in abundant glass, then then somehow miraculously it will create a culture of social and institutional transparency, accountability. I think that is often wishful thinking, but here we have the origins of that idea and we can see how it is tied to uh, questions of power over others in an in a institution of confinement, which uh, uh, Panopticon was. There is another type of public glass buildings that comes into being in, or that proliferates in the 18th and especially 19th century. It's the it's horticultural architecture, it's the glass houses. Um, the Crystal Palace in London is, uh, you could say, the most extravagant and most uh, large-scale uh, expression of this uh, genre. It served, of course, many other purposes as well. But all the greenhouses and winter gardens that came to be seen as part of um, upper class uh, architecture and uh, imperial architecture in the 19th century. Um, also, all these buildings also project a message of power. In this case, it's a power about over power over the natural environment. The ability to create uh, a winter garden is, is in itself a paradoxical uh, aspiration, uh, the idea that you can have a garden in the winter, that you can uh, uh, basically create these islands of nature that are available year round, that uh, and islands of nature that can compensate for uh, an accelerating environmental destruction, which is caused at that very moment in time uh, by industrialization and increasing urban growth. So, so there is an, a paradoxical side to this uh, development, um, a uh, again, it is about projecting power over uh, processes, natural processes that ultimately uh, transcend our ability uh, to, you know, to control them as, as humans. We see this now with climate change as well. And uh, there is a, also a, a power impulse as far as the display of exotic goods in these uh, greenhouses, um, winter gardens is concerned, uh, having growing oranges in the British Isles in a, in a glass house or any kind of other exotic fruit uh, is, was more than anything else seen to be uh, um, um, a message of colonial power that Europeans wielded across uh, the globe. So uh, me, instead of looking at horticultural architecture as, as just some form of you know, benign uh, um, you know, domestic uh, pastime, uh, we really should look at this architecture as one that aspires to um, uh, exhibit, like a museum, like a catalog, uh, tries to exhibit uh, uh, the, uh, the European 
a desire to control not just nature, but also to control other parts of the world and to display plants, exotic plants and other objects in these in these case in these uh, window cases turned buildings in these showcases turned buildings. Hmm. In that example, you referenced a few times kind of that we still have this, right? We still have greenhouses and try and control nature. We still envelop government buildings in glass as if that has some relation with what would happen inside of them. So as much as you were talking about kind of the more explicit forms of, you know, traditional forms of British imperialism, that answer, I think, gives us a great sense of kind of why are we like we are now, right? That's where it comes from, because that's very much what we still have. So if I ask you then to almost zoom out a bit further, um, now that we are sort of up to understanding where we're at now, you have this fascinating sentence in the book that the glass window, quote, reinforces the antagonistic relation between interior and exterior that runs deep in Western culture. Now that we've gone from the beginning up to essentially now, can you take us through this bigger picture idea? Yeah. I mean, I think people people might disagree with uh, uh, that argument. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's my reading of the material that there is that antagonistic relation between interior and exterior that uh, has now come to be deeply embedded in, in, in uh, Western culture. Uh, I, my my thinking on this is based on some of these observations that I mentioned earlier, the way in which uh, glass um, came to service uh, and privilege uh, our visual appetite, if you will, the idea that we can showcase things that windows should be uh, become basically objects to frame the environment, the built environment, the natural environment in a way that privileges the, uh, the visual sense. So it is a, it, it becomes a, um, it becomes a, a, a form of, of, um, of, of, of what Richard Sennett once called protected openness, right? We, we can indulge in our, uh, in our vision without actually having to face the other sensory dimensions that uh, the natural environment comes with. The, uh, you know, it's in English and I'm not a native speaker of English, as you can tell. So maybe I sometimes pay more attention to these linguistic, you know, details. But in English, you say you command a view. And I live in a city in Manhattan where people pay millions of dollars to command a view. The idea of standing behind a uh, oversized glass window uh, is one that people associate with power. The idea of, of economic power, of course, uh, uh, but also the idea, again, of, of being able to take in nature in this scopic way, in this optics way, without actually having to face all the other sensory um, uh, challenges too, that that you know that always come with a full experience of uh, nature. And glass has glass has minimized that exposure in in often very subtle ways. But uh, think of as what I said earlier, the the olfactory dimension, um, the the our modern industrial tightly sealed windows of course completely insulate us from say urban smells uh, which is no longer something that we uh, or we think of as a nuisance most of the time any kind of smell that intrudes in our private space and we expect the windows to keep that out uh, we now install what we call and what is sold as 
a soundproof uh, glass. Gla we expect glass to become a uh, um, a a, a effective barrier against the exterior soundscape. And in that process, again, this is our understanding of comfort. And I'm not saying that I uh, that I have uh, in privately that my that that my expectations are other than that of that, that they differ from other peoples. Of course, it's hard to um, you know extract yourself from these cultural conventions, um, especially when they've become collective. But it's worth reflecting, I believe, on this point on how we have reduced uh, windows to uh, a visual frame, basically. And that is also reflected in uh, so much of um, modern and contemporary architecture, where uh, uh, the uniformity of window design, uh, the very fact that we have resigned, if you will, to the idea that the window must always be uh, rectangular, uh, which in itself is reminiscent of, uh, of, a, wind of a picture frame, uh, that 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 uniformity is is I I believe to some extent a reflection of an atrophy of uh, of 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 the window as a as a space that could serve much more as an interface between in exterior and exterior than as a protective barrier. There are other architectural traditions where you can still observe that um, a function of the window serving as a interface rather than as a uh, protective barrier. I talk in the book, in the epilogue, especially about um, traditional uh, Japanese architecture, which has always fascinated me as a counterexample. Uh, granted, it's uh, Japan has also uh, moved to uh, the Western understanding of uh, the window. Anyone who's been to Tokyo can confirm that. But the old idea of windows as uh, in traditional Japanese architecture of elements that slide rather than open as the, the, in, the delicate interplay between light and shadow, uh, the idea that the, 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 the window is actually, or the window's frame is something that can be, uh, can open in different grades, in different degrees, rather than being, uh, than functioning in this binary uh, understanding of open versus shut and nothing in between. Uh, these are things that, that fascinate me because they point to a wealth of, other ways of thinking about the uh, more fluid ways of thinking about that is relation between interior and exterior. Absolutely. Um, and even just in the examples you've mentioned from earlier time periods, there's other ways of thinking visible there as well. Um, I'd love to ask you about something that we both have referenced, um, but kind of not fully poked at yet and in the spirit of reflecting on things that are so culturally dominant um i'd love to ask you about how we might critically consider ideas that as we've talked about government public offices can be made transparent by being sheathed in glass and um, by using words that are related to glass can you talk us through maybe the extent to which we should be skeptical of this idea? Yes. Uh, I mean, first of all, that's, I think, where the study of the past can be helpful because uh, as the book is sort of winding up and gets into the 20th century, I'm trying to uh, talk about the, 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 the raw ambiguities, the, the contradiction uh, inherent to this uh, imagery of transparency. And I actually show how, for instance, fascist regimes uh, um, adopted this language of transparency for their co-opted, adopted and co-opted it for their own uh, purposes. Uh, the uh, 
glass architecture in the early 20th century was associated with modernism. It was associated with uh, the international style and what uh, Mies van der Rohe and others would consider to be a kind of honest architecture. So our modern understanding of transparency as being a socially good thing um, has its root in that discourse. But when you get to the uh, interwar period, and especially to the 1930s, you can see that both, say, Italian fascism and also the Third Reich uh, adopted some of these ideas for their own purposes. The uh, uh, Mussolini was a, uh, a great uh, proponent of uh, glass architecture. Uh, uh, Hitler had a uh, taste, um, pronounced taste for oversized windows. I talk about that too. There's a whole um, propaganda apparatus in the Third Reich that promotes the idea of um, of um, uh, a race, Germans as a race of light, and therefore the idea that uh, German architecture should also uh, be, uh, uh, you know, involve these uh, you know, amply fenestrated uh, uh, walls. So when you when you start to read these things, you realize the transparency per se is 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 not a good thing. It is something that was uh, used and co-opted. By uh, in in both sort of democratic discourses, but also in authoritarian discourses, the logic of of accountability and the logic of surveillance can easily uh, can easily uh, um, uh, become entangled. And uh, the other the other thing to consider is um, so once we understand that there's a some somewhat of a fiction involved here in the idea that glass will automatically create good environments and and socially beneficial environments. The other thing to consider is the enormous ecological price tag that this architecture has, the price that we pay for these fantasies of power and accountability uh, that our glass buildings are. The, in an age of climate change, we know that there are, uh, that um, uh, glass buildings are among uh, the greatest contributors in cities to uh, global warming because of their uh, a, a carbon footprint, the way in which they often uh, glass towers, uh, say here in New York City, uh, you know, are were uh, there was an attempt to ban them. In fact, under the previous mayor, an attempt to ba- uh, ban glass buildings from the city, new, the construction of new glass buildings altogether. That never went anywhere. There are powerful interests that prevented that from happening. But everyone who knows something about these things knows that um, glass buildings are ecologically often not efficient. They require permanent air conditioning uh, during heat periods because, of course, the the greenhouse effect, we talked about the greenhouses in the winter grounds, the greenhouse effect uh, applies to these buildings as well. Um, And in wintertime, you have the opposite uh, effect. You have uh, these buildings often need dehumidification to become uh, um, inhabitable or or pleasant. So, uh, so there is that issue, and uh, we have to we have to reflect on that because I think what what we've come to expect from certain types of political and corporate architecture is is a promise of of uh, transparency and accountability that actually is a mismatch as to what these what the institutions can deliver and the price tag that it comes with. Is, uh, is more than counterproductive for the kind of architecture that we would actually need. So that's obviously, I think, something we all have a lot of opportunity to rethink, right? Listening to this and walking into kind of any major city, you'd have a lot to kind of go, hang on a second, what, you know, look at that big skyscraper. What is that trying to say? And why might I want to be critical about it? 
But throughout this interview, we've highlighted a number of things that people might want to rethink about architectural glass based on this book. I know kind of what has been running through my mind having read it, but given that you are so much in the depths and the expertise of this, what would you like listeners and readers to consider next time they look at architectural class? Well, one one lesson that I would be, would be happy if people take away from this is, first of all, to, you know, that there are very few things in our built environment uh, that are God-given, that exist for natural reasons. These are cultural conventions that have emerged over very long periods of time. And I think it is instructive as an object lesson, if you will, to uh, reflect on, on, on the way in which societies have come to embrace certain choices and certain materials. Uh, uh, and that, that is almost from a philosophical point of view, I think that's always a good um, uh, uh, you know, process of reflection. The other, thing is, uh, the other thing I'd like to take people away is more concrete. Uh, can we still afford this kind of architecture ecologically? Uh, given uh, the moment we are in, the climate change we're seeing, um, uh, what would a sustainable architecture, one that cares less about symbolism uh, and symbolic messaging, but more about sustainability and responsibility, stewardship, what would an architecture like this um, look like? There are architecture, there are architectures, there are architectural firms that have um, that have been um, building more along these lines, and that is heartening. Uh, um, I, as I said, there is um, there's also a, there have been political efforts to contain some of the excesses, uh, but some of these efforts, you know, reached a, a, an impasse. Uh, as I said, the ban on on glass and uh, architecture here in New York um, never came into existence and and came stalled for uh, because there are vested interests in play as well. And the third factor is is again sort of a more ma- macro point, the global dimension of this. Um, the way in which we universalize what is a very European tradition, uh, historically speaking, of uh, building. Um, It is very badly suited to uh, uh, parts of the world uh, where uh, where extended heat periods are, for instance, part of the the, the annual uh, season, seasonal cycle. Um, There are, uh, I know, people in the field who have spoken about uh, glass architecture as a form of environmental colonialism, I'm quoting. And I think that's um, another point to, um, uh, to reflect on, the way in which uh, a, certain, a certain idiom of Western architecture has come to be universalized and is postulated as being universally uh, desirable, when in fact it has superseded fascinating uh, uh, traditional idioms of architecture, different understandings also of light, of privacy, uh, of sustainability, and whether we can actually, by taking a step back, whether we can not only make more space for these older traditions to uh, um, to be recovered, but also and to learn from uh, other understandings of what is ultimately the relation between humans and the natural environment. That, and it, that relationship maybe doesn't need to be as antagonistic, coming back to your earlier question, doesn't need to be as antagonistic as our architecture often, I think, um, uh, compels us to think it must be. There may be ways to think about um, uh, the relation uh, between interior and exterior in, in a way that is a lot more fluid and less, um, less categorical 
than uh, we are used to. That's a learn. That would be a learning process. And if the book can inspire people to uh, learn about that process, to learn about that history, I, I feel I've accomplished more than I could have uh, uh, wished at the outset. Well, the book is available. People can go read it and start going through that process, Um, which leaves me really only with my final question. I almost hesitate to ask because of how much of an accomplishment really this book is, but it is done. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on transparency that you'd like to preview for us? Thank you. Well, that's kind of you, uh, Miranda. No, nothing on transparency anymore, nothing on glass and, and windows. I've worked on that subject for uh, uh, so many years. I feel uh, I've said whatever I had to say in this book, and I'm happy to move on and to leave the reader maybe with some of those questions. I'm not saying I have definitive answers, but I have some questions and others can uh, bring their own expertise to that. I will go into a period of recovery. First of all, the book was uh, very demanding uh, to put together. I've never done anything on that scale. Also with images, the book has uh, 130 images in color. I must must say that as a historian, nothing had prepared me. Uh, as someone who's working more textual you know, methods, usually nothing had prepared me for that logistical challenge. So all I can say, after I reemerge from a period of uh, <laughs> recovery, uh, I have uh, ideas for a new project, which would be on the history of mobility, very different subject, especially vehicular mo- mobility. Uh, I would uh, be more in my home turf of early modernity, the period between the 15th and 18th century, uh, the way in which mobility um, became a part of people's everyday life, especially in cities. I'm, as you can see, me still wearing the hat of the urban historian here. But again, I would try to take it all the way uh, to the modern period, certainly in some extended epilogue, because I think that's another issue that is, uh, you know, present and pressing, I think, for many people today, uh, mobility and its excesses. And I'm interested in the, in the historical origins of that phenomenon. Well, that sounds fascinating. So best of luck with that. But I'm glad you're taking a break. Uh, Much deserved. Uh, And of course, for listeners who are intrigued, the book we've been discussing is titled Transparency, the Material History of an Idea, published by Yale University Press in 2023. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Of course. Thank you, Miranda, for this wonderful interview.